The word immigrant carries all kinds of ideas in its three syllables. It's weighed down by all the meanings it's been given. You know the kinds of things I'm talking about. Low-skilled, high-skilled, contributor, drain, cockroach, or just plainly put, simply a concern. Not all of these terms are necessarily negative, but each of them is impersonal, clinical, and cold. We live in a world where it is necessary to remind people that immigrants are not things, not a burden, and not the enemy. That they're human beings. That was Maya Goodfellow reading from her new book, Hostile Environment, How Immigrants Became Scapegoats. I'm Nusha Bastani, and you're listening to Declarations. today by Maya, who's an author, broadcast commentator, and academic. She's written for the New York Times, The Guardian, and The New Statesman, among other publications. She holds a PhD from SOAS, University of London, where she examined processes of racialization in British international development discourse. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. We also have in the room two of our panelists. I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi, um, Mona here. I'm very excited to be a part of this episode and talk about immigration with no one else but Maya. (laughs) Hi, this is Matt Mahmoudi. I'm super excited to be joining another episode of the podcast. It's great to be back and talking about migration. So migration is something we've been talking about throughout the season. We've had episodes about the hostile environment, about the politics of exhaustion, about digital borders. Uh, Today, we really wanted to focus on the immigrant and also how race plays into immigration. Uh, That's something that comes across strongly in your book, Maya. Mm -hmm. I wanted to start us off by asking very broadly, who are we talking about when we talk about an immigrant? So I actually think this is quite difficult. (laughs) It's quite difficult to define exactly who is the subject of the conversation. And one of the things that I found interesting when I was doing the research for the book is that Because of the 1951 Refugee Convention, we have this widely accepted definition of what a refugee is, right? Who constitutes a refugee? And when it comes to this figure of the migrant, at least in British political discourse, it's never really, really explained who exactly is being discussed and how exactly we are defining who is an immigrant and who isn't. And the UK does tend to operate under the UN definition of an immigrant, which is someone who moves to a new country and takes residence in that country for 12 months or more. And something that um, the academic Bridget Anderson points out is that if you change that time period, this time period of um, of 12 months or more, is you begin to me- you can measure immigration differently, if you like. So the government has this obsession with wanting to measure immigration in the UK and measure who is coming in and out of the country and what net migration is. But if you change that definition of the the time frame, you measure it differently and the numbers look slightly different. And that to me was quite interesting because for the past 20 years at least, I mean, it's much longer, but 20 years at least in the UK, immigration has been one of the major political issues. It's topped um, opinion polls when people have been asked at election time what they care about, what they're worried about, the the phrase is often what they're concerned about. I use uh, quotation marks for that. Um, And it's puzzling because exactly who is the subject of the discussion is is often not clearly defined. And so what you find is when you talk to people about immigration and when politicians are talking about immigration and who is the immigrant and who, who is not, they tend not to really be talking about white, wealthy French financiers who are coming to work in London. They have a very particular raced and classed idea of who the immigrant is and who exactly is the problem. And one of the things that I think it's also worth noting is actually people who are born in the UK also can be seen as immigrants, right? And so we have this definition of talking about second and third generation immigrants. I'm technically a second generation immigrant. I'm not ashamed of that, but I think it's puzzling that we are using this term when I was born here, I don't really, you know, I think there's a problem with wanting to be obsessed with your citizenship in this way, as if as if being a non-citizen is a negative thing. Um, but it's telling, actually, that right after the EU referendum, there was a rise in hate crimes um, across the country. And it was 
not only people who were um, visibly, I don't know how you visibly are a migrant, but you know, maybe who were speaking a different language or who were perceived to have an accent, but it was actually people, people of color, um, Jewish people as well, who were being marked out as a threat and a problem and who were the, the subject of some of those attacks. And so that tells us that this category immigrant is shifting. And for a lot of people, they, they conceptualize it in very different ways. And this is cannot be separated from how we understand class and race in the UK, I think. Um, so as you say, we've been hearing about immigration as a concern a lot for the past, let's say, 20 years. But also in your book, you point out that the way in which the this kind of impulse to keep talking about it in this way as a problem uh, is often framed as we're not talking enough about immigration. Um, and you point out that that's not necessarily the case. And historically, there is the sentiment of this like anti-immigration sentiment goes a lot further back. So could you give us a bit of a historical context of what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, so I guess the first thing is to say that politicians have for, for the past few years, as I mentioned, the past 20 years at least, been saying, oh, we're not having an honest debate about immigration. We need to talk about immigration more. People feel like they can't talk about immigration. And like, really, if you look at the amount of column inches, the amount of TV debates, the amount of political speeches that have been dedicated to talking about immigration, I would agree with some of those politicians, people who are in no way sharing similar um, political, uh, their, their political affiliations and their political ideologies are very, very different from my own. Um, but I agree that there needs to be an honest conversation about it. But the reality is the honest conversation they want to have is one where people are able to say whatever they want in whatever terms without being called racist or without you know being having to think about whether what they're saying is actually um is actually racist or is actually prejudiced um but yeah you you find that there is a real lack of no understanding of britain's history of immigration legislation and debate and what i was most struck by I think there's always a worry with drawing continuities with the past is that you suggest nothing has changed and things have changed. You know, that you don't want to ignore the anti-racist movements, the struggles that have been fought and won in the UK and beyond. Um, but you can draw continuities with the, the debates of the 60s and 70s, the debates of the early 1900s around immigration. And you find what I found so start startling. I, I kind of knew, but I didn't really... And when it's there on the page in front of you in black and white, I think you do, you can't really understand how similar the arguments now against immigration are as to what they were then or what they have long been. And so one of the first pieces of um, what we would probably call immigration legislation in the UK was the 1905 Aliens Act. And that was directed towards Jewish people who were fleeing pogroms from Russia. And that like, the, the language around that was very much these people who are coming into the country are a threat to our economy, a threat to the British working class. They're going to take jobs, but also their culture is different from ours and they're going to water down British culture. You can just map that on. Like the figure of who the immigrant is has shifted and changed, but you can just map that on to how immigration has been talked about more recently as well, I think. Absolutely. And I guess the point we really want to draw out here is that race has been so central to that figure. Um, and as you mentioned, this is partially why you could be in the UK for generations and then still be referred to as an immigrant. Um, and this myth that keeps coming up about keeping British culture, keeping the country quote-unquote white. So I guess the next thing we want to talk about is who this myth benefits. Um, so maybe I'll ask Matt to jump in here. Yeah, so I guess you've spoken a little bit about and, and, and told us sort of a lot about how the narratives repeat themselves and I'm really interested in whether the people who are benefiting from these narratives remain the same so I mean there's a there's a large history of sort of how racial capitalism plays into into all of this the securitization of borders who are a part of that industry um, increasingly we're seeing Silicon Valley involved in that space as well so you know creating the conditions that necessitate migration and then reaping the benefits off of controlling it is sort of quite an interesting industry uh, of violence and I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that yeah, so I, I think that I, I primarily think about the UK, at least in this book, and I think that what is often lost in the so this economic argument I mentioned before about immigration being bad for the economy, what is often lost is the fact that the UK as a whole 
So not the UK internally, because we're a very, very unequal country. But the UK as a whole benefits from what is an incre- incredibly unequal global economy, right? And so the, there is a book called Violent Borders um, by, by Rhys Jones. And what he does is he maps out actually how these bordering regimes benefit corporations because they can essentially move around at will, right? They can move, they can relocate, as we know, to wherever they want in the world, wherever they think labor is going to be cheap. But those same borders that those corporations can more or less ignore um, are hemming people in, right? They're forcing people to stay within those countries, creating this exploitable workforce in you know, you don't want to ignore the agency of people within those countries, the forms of resistance that are going on. Um, if you look at places like Bangladesh, mm-hmm. that's, that's very clear that there is a lot of resistance to these very exploitative working conditions. Um, but that is happening nonetheless. And those border regimes are hemming people in. But what they're also doing in the UK, at least as I see it, is they these visa regimes that have been created... They allow people to come into the country, often people who are considered called low, low skilled, right? Let's <laughs> put aside the problems with that that terminology. But they allow certain people to come into the country. Um, and it's very complicated because the visa system is very, very messy. But for some people, what it means is you can come into the country on very, very bad terms. You can only stay here for a particular amount of time. And then you're expected to leave. And for some people, it means that they're able to come into the country um for say 12 months but they never recoup the money that they spent even moving in the first place and the people who are benefiting from that i mean in the uk it's the home office these massive visa um fees for visas um the home office make a huge amount of money off of that uh from what we know um but also these corporations that you mentioned so there is this kind of outsourcing of border security um in all kinds of different ways and i think a very good example of this um, and we don't know all the ins and outs of how this actually operates because it's also kind of shadowy, um, are detention centres. Mm-hmm. So what you have is this discourse in the UK that people who come here are bad for the economy. It's not true. It's not borne out by the evidence. But it's it's telling that that is, that is going on. So what they talk about a lot is undercutting of wages, that it's immigration, that it's undercutting British workers' wages. You know, totally discounting the fact that we have a labor market that's structured in a way that allows exploitation to happen but if you go into detention centers some of which are run by these big private corporations you find that people who are being detained are allowed again use again quotation marks you know they're given this supposed privilege of being able to work to you know occupy their time um for a pound an hour so you're allowed a pound an hour for certain jobs within these detention centers. And one of the arguments that's made in some of the academic literature is that that, um, that runs totally counter to this idea that immigration is un- it's immigrants that are undercutting wages when what you're seeing is these private corporations potentially making, you know, exploiting, grossly exploiting people who they're also detaining. And really, it's perverse when you think about what that actually means in terms of the money that is being made, but also what that is doing to people's what that is doing to people who are being detained. Um, and it means that they don't have to pay anyone, like you know, the minimum wage, which which is already in the UK doesn't allow you to live in a particularly. Uh, it doesn't really allow you to live in in any kind of meaningful way in in the sense of what the cost of living is. And so I think for me, the detention center is a very good site by which to understand the forms of exploitation that are going on, the the way that money is being made and how that works for um, some of these corporations, but also how that works for the people who are in power and making these decisions. So what you're saying is that the narrative around the undercutting of wages by immigrants actually creates the conditions under which something like these detention centers being as lucrative as they are can exist. And as a matter of fact, that stretches our understanding of the prison industrial complex. Yeah, I think so. And I think that, you know, that narrative of of who is to blame, it's kind of the age old argument. Um, The narrative that it is migration that is the issue is just so evidently allows allows government to not legislate in a particular way allows these private corporations to exploit in the way that they do also people who are british workers right and they interestingly so that um that aliens act that i mentioned that you know five aliens act around that time in the uk there was huge and huge amounts of anti-semitism it was really rife in terms of in relation to the immigration debate and there was a pamphlet produced by a group of trade unions i think it was um primarily uh, spearheaded by jewish trade unions mm-hmm. um 
And what they said is they were talking to the trade union movement. They were talking to the left as well. And they were saying, you shouldn't be blaming us. You shouldn't be blaming Jewish migrants for your low pay. You should not be pitting us against the British worker because the enemy is the capitalist class. Hmm. We are not the enemy. And reading that, I think is... um. I mean, it's kind of depressing <laughs> because, you know, it can still it can it can still in a lot of ways apply. But it's also a, a very useful analysis, I think, mm-hmm. to understand how this has been perpetuated. And like I say, it's not like nothing has changed. Sometimes the actors involved do sh- change and shift and there have been victories won. But there is there is this very clear narrative still at play in terms of blaming the other and allowing, I guess, capital to kind of flourish in whatever way right i mean I, I guess this is where muna's sort of interest as well comes in um to speak a little bit about whiteness as, as underpinning some yeah. of these movements um, so i really want to delve into sort of the racialization of the immigrant so why do you think that discourse is permitted so this othering so the immigrant as the enemy why do you think that is permitted more so in this day and age, do we see are we seeing resurgence, and how do we sort of tie that into like our institutional power relations that exist in our world today? So we talked about the capitalist class. So how does this work, and why are people buying into this mm. this rhetoric, this rhetoric of hate? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I imagine that it um, depends on the context you're talking about, and I think in the UK context. Um, Gaminda Bambra, who is based at Sussex University, what she talks about when she looks, she I interviewed her for the book, and we talked about the history of immigration legislation. And what you find is um, these immigration acts that came later, so later than the 1905 one that I was talking about, but in the 60s, they really come at a time when people are coming from former colon- colonies and former colonies to the UK. And people were, were able to do that because they were actually British citizens as um, Britain had had this huge empire, um, people were entitled to come to the UK. And it just so happened that increasing numbers of people were doing that in the 60s. And what you find is it's kind of, it, it, there's there's a lot of back and forth from the 50s onwards, I mean, if, if not before, of politicians saying, you know, can we legislate against immigrants? Can we stop this? Can, can we make it more difficult for people to get here? Because their primary concern, they, they and this is so widely agreed in a lot of the academic literature now, um, and it's really clear in how it was talked about, but also politicians who were involved in a lot of this legislation at the time, some of them do talk about this as being about race, right? So this isn't just us reading onto it. It is, it's, it, you can very clearly make this argument that they wanted to make it more difficult for people who were not white, so people of color from colonies and former colonies to come to the UK. That was the aim of a lot of this legislation that was introduced from the 60s onwards. Um, and so Gaminda Bamber, who I mentioned, she says, you know, these, this isn't immigration legislation. This, these are policies of racialization. These are policies of demarcating who is the legitimate citizen and who is not. And the reason why I think, I'm not sure that ever went away. I think it was grappled with in, in, in some ways at certain points by um, the kinds of resistance that I've talked about. So when people were coming, they were coming to the UK having been sold this dream, having been told, you know, you're, you, are, you are welcome to come to the UK. And a lot of people who did so say you know we were under no illusions like we lived under empire so we didn't think we were going to necessarily come here and everything was going to be great um but people come and they experience intense hostility there's a very good documentary um that was on the bbc a while ago that was about the nurses who came who basically were the lifeblood of the nhs when it was first um set up who came from um caribbean countries and elsewhere and they one of them says um one of the people interviewed for this this documentary says you know it was almost like people wanted us to come and work in the NHS, but they didn't want us to be anywhere in the evenings and the weekends. They didn't want us to live in the UK. They just wanted us here to work. And I'm not convinced. I think attitudes have changed in certain ways, um, but I'm not convinced that sentiment of who is the threatening migrant ever really went away. And I think the forms of racialization have shifted over time. And what we now see is a very, very, the immigration debate is very bound up with Islamophobia. but I, I think that you do, at least in the UK context, have to go back to that history of empire and this racial hierarchy and who was seen to be the threat, who was not, who was seen to be the human and who was not. And who, you know, the a lot of the what I was writing about and thinking about is the left as well in the UK and the trade union movement, sections of the trade union movement, for them the worker 
was the white worker, mm. right? Historically, mm-hmm. and the, you know, as I say, these things have shifted, but you still see that in some of the debate. Who's who's considered to really be the really be the British person, really be be the person to be concerned about? Um, and so, I, yeah, I think it is that history of empire that is so present everywhere in the UK, but at the same time, the realities of it completely erased. And so I think, you know, what you mentioned, who is really considered a British citizen. So looking into that, it's that, you know, that idea of nationality. So who's a real national? Um, Also the concept of sort of passport privilege. So the idea that, you know, a certain nationality gives you access, gives you mobility. People who come from certain countries have to face extra security checks, um, have extra economic barriers. So we saw Trump's ban on Muslim-majority countries. So how do you think that applies to the UK? Um, And what barriers for mobility do passports play? And how do you see this, uh, how do you see the role nationalism plays in this rhetoric and in this discourse? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a massive role. And I think to map it is really hard because of the way the immigration system um, functions is, it's very complicated, our visa system. So there's something that just came out recently from the Law Commission that was saying since 2010, the um, since 2010 the length of regulations around immigration has quadrupled, <laughs> and it's always been quite difficult to navigate. But I I think a telling moment was when the UK the woman who was then UK Prime Minister Theresa May was trying to negotiate with countries. She was going around the world, she's trying to sort out a Brexit deal. So this was after the EU referendum, and she was going around the world, you know, trying to basically speak with governments to figure out what potential trade deals could happen, like what what Britain's relationship would be with different parts of the world. And in a very uh, it very very close together in terms of timing, she goes to India and like just talking to the Indian government about. Um, about potential trade deals and what this relationship is going to look like. And they say, listen, we're not going to do anything unless you change the system for people from India to come to the UK, unless you make it easier for people to come and make more visas available. And she says, no, sorry, it's not, it's not going to happen. And then I think, I can't remember whether this was before or after this conversation she had with the Indian government, you know, which is I uh, not, the Indian government has major problems it, itself, but in terms of race, um, but she then goes and she says, oh, we would quite like a, what she calls a kith and kin policy with America and Australia, countries that are perceived to be white majority. Okay. Um, and <laughs> right. so, yeah, in terms of immigration. Mm-hmm. And so so I think um, you do still see this idea of like who, who in terms of nationality, like who is okay to come into the country and who is not. And a moment, another moment where that was very, very clear, I think, was during the EU referendum. Um, Nigel Farage, very famously, Nigel Farage, who's the UKIP, was the UKIP leader of the UK Independence Party, um, who was kind of, who'd been at, you know, every political debate for 20 years, no matter what he was asked about, he would talk about immigration being a problem. Um, he, in, during that during that EU referendum, he stood in front of this poster, quite famously, this red breaking point, and it had a a picture of people who actually it turns out were refugees trying to make their way through Europe um and that was interesting because the EU referendum debate technically should have been a debate that was about free movement I mean I don't like the terms of that debate and I think they're they're very poor it's very poorly conducted and people misunderstand and have all these preconceptions about what immigration is doing in the context of free movement but in that debate actually Free movement technically for a lot of people should be coded as white because they think of Europe as white. Europe is not white, right? Obviously we know <laughs> this, this is not um, it's not white in the way people imagine it to be. Um, but it technically should. You, you assume it would be coded as white, I guess. And instead what you had was picture picture of, of brown refugees who were not European. <laughs> we can we can you know, surmise. Um, we're, prob- we're trying to seek refuge in Europe most likely. And that's the image that was used for that debate. And so I think all that tells us is is um, there is this idea of who is the problem and who is not the problem. And I think that is very much at the center of a lot of these quite nationalistic debates of belonging and, and not belonging. So you mentioned, you know, not everyone necessarily who's born in Britain is seen as British. You have this very, very um, clear moment of that when you have this discussion around um, the cricket test. So whether people who um, are people from Pakistan 
I mean, you, you could be extended to talking about people from India, um, whether they show loyalty to the English cricket team. So people who maybe have pa- their parents um, or ancestors came from this part of the world, whether who, which, who do they deport, support? Because if they don't support the English cricket team, are they really English? And you really think, I mean, even if they did, they're still not going to be seen as English every single, you know, every moment in time. And you have these crisis moments in the UK of political unrest, what are seen as crisis moments by the political class, but are moments really of unrest. And at those moments, the question of people who are black and brown and Britain, their, their, their loyalties and their right to be in the UK is put under question, even if they were born here. And like I said, I don't want to draw this... It's kind of problematic to draw this distinction between the citizen and the so-called non-citizen as if one is legitimate and the other isn't. But it shows us how for some people and at particular times, ideas of what it is to be British and ideas of nationality are very much racially coded. So, you know, that brings us to another, you know, topic. So we talked about the nationality of citizenship, um, immigration refugees so do you think that people tend to sort of group immigrants as like one homogenized racialized group Um, do people tend to see refugees and immigrants all as one and even within immigration itself you know there are so many different levels so people who are coming from a different socioeconomic status people who come in as residents and need to get their family over Um, so how do you think people are looking at immigrants um, you know and as a racialized group um, and why do you think that discourse is permitted, allowed? Mm. This is a really good question. And it's one of the big challenges, actually, with writing and researching and understanding the debate is, you're right, it's not... E- the, this this term immigrant and this idea that there is a group who are Im- of people who are immigrants, not only is it problematic for the reasons that we talked about in terms of gender... Um, in terms of race and class, sorry, uh, but also because people's status and their position within society and how they're navigating these rules is very different depending on who you talk to. I think you can say that actually, unless you are like the elite of the elite, like the super, super rich. I mean, we've seen right with Meghan Markle, you know, I'm not going to get into that debate. We've seen though that even if you are like the most elite of the elite, you're still going to have, you'll be okay like materially, but like you're, you're potentially still going to be subjected to what is very, very racist discourse. Um, but in terms of the actual immigration controls, I think for most people, it's not good, right? And so I, I know people who have spent hundreds and hundreds of pounds wanting to get their decisions, like getting and needing support from lawyers, and there's very little support for people in the UK. But also we have this system where people on certain visas are tied to their employers, they're sponsored by their employers, which, you know, it sounds okay, and it is, it's quite actually quite costly for employers to do that. But what it can mean for some people is that they can't move jobs. And, you know, you might say, well, of all the problems in immigration, that's not a, like primary concern. But for some people, that really does impact their lives. It impacts their right to stay in the country and, you know, stay living the lives that they've built for themselves. But you are right that it is different depending on who you're talking to and which groups of people you're talking to, which visas people are on, which countries people have come from and how they're seen. Um, but I think this question about the distinction between immigrants and refugees, I don't think that's well understood. I think there are moments and times uh, and places where it is. So you do sometimes hear liberal politicians saying, oh yeah, 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 immigration's a problem, but like refugees, we should be we should be allowing more refugees into the country. Mm-hmm. And on one level you think, okay, this is true, because the UK has, I think, less than 1% of the world's refugee population. There is obviously a huge problem in terms of people being forced to live in camps um, for huge amounts of time all around the world. Europe seems to think that it is has a lot of refugees coming here but actually comparatively to other parts of the world it's, it's just not not the case and obviously all of this is underpinned by a very problematic discourse that suggests that refugees are a problem to be dealt with um and a threat uh so you do have these moments where liberal politicians talk about it in this way which as i've said on one hand okay you think yeah like actually we need to advocate for that because the system is so terrible and our asylum system is so so strict and people are mistreated so badly and increasingly, we're going to have to think about this. You know, you mentioned what what's going to happen with climate change. People are not covered by the fifty one convention, nineteen fifty one refugee convention. So there's an issue there. But you know, that one problem there for me is that that often people are drawing on a myth that the UK has long been a welcoming country to refugees, and it's some just just recently strayed from that path. And 
again, I don't want to just present a very negative picture. There have been movements to, there have been, you know, people have organized and uh, demanded change and demanded people have been brought, like, are, are, again, in quotes, allowed to come to the UK as refugees. So there are, there are these very important moments of solidarity that happen. And the reason why people are able to come to the UK at times, but there is a, and that happened, for instance, during the Second World War, right? People organized. And um, there is a very good, um, it's not this, I can't remember the direct quote, but there's a very good passage in a book by the historian Louise London, where she says, you know, we remember the kinder transport in the UK, which is when children were brought for, um, fleeing the Holocaust were brought to the UK. We remember that and we celebrate that and we draw on that. Often the kinder transport is drawn on as this kind of thing should be happening now. And it's, tr- it's true. Um, and it's a useful tool. Right, that's a useful tool. I'm not saying you shouldn't draw on that history, but what that often forgets is it was only the children who came, mm. right? And the reasons for that are complicated, but there was a there was a real, uh, a real um, attempt to make it difficult for people, like because of the levels of anti-Semitism that I mentioned. Um, so you do have this distinction, right, at times um, from certain politicians between the immigrant and the refugee. But you're right; they these things, I think, for a lot of people, just blur together and one of the big fallacies in um the uk is there is this idea that so the new labor government which came in in 1997 and were in power until 2010s 13 years tony blair was the prime minister there were a number of home secretaries during that time and whilst they were in power immigration rose as a political issue so i talked earlier about it being like one of the top three issues at election this really happened during that time and what a lot of um, pundits and like popular tellings of that period say is, oh, that happened because New Labour let too many people into the country. Mm-hmm. And there is, it, New Labour did come in and they they changed the di- some of the discourse around immigration. So they said, oh yeah, it is good for the economy, right? It was kind of in this dehumanizing way. I critique it in the book. Um, but they did, you know, have this slightly different message on the economy. They did open the system in a particular way. I would see it as in part being, these explode like these visas that are not great for a lot of people um but that did happen um and so they the number of people they estimated would come into the country from parts of europe was bigger than what they had suggested right so that that there's that that did happen but to suggest that anti-immigration feeling went up just because of the numbers totally ignores a how these two things are never never just coupled together it's not just simply people dislike immigration because there's too many immigrants that's not how that's not how it functions. Um, but also it totally ignores that New Labour were anti-asylum almost immediately. Almost immediately coming into office. They were trying to make the asylum stricter. They did things like stopping people from being able to work whilst they were waiting for their asylum claim to be processed. They um, talked about, you know, they enthusiastically talked about getting the numbers of people who were able to claim asylum down. And they... they was so um, willing to accept and reproduce that narrative. And that is never considered in this telling of why anti-immigration feeling went up under New Labour. And I think that that is because people don't always separate out. They are able to in moments. And, you know, people do talk about, we yeah, we should be taking in refugees and we should be more compassionate to certain people. That does happen at times. But I think when people hear that, it's the other. Mm. The immigrant, the refugee, it all becomes one. And Heaven Crawley has done some work on this about actually even this distinction between immigrant and refugee is also very difficult to demarcate in terms of people moving. You know, people might move to one country um, because they are fleeing war or persecution and they, they move, may move on to another country for all kinds of reasons and they're seen as an economic migrant in that other country, mm. right? And so the, there is a difficulty with these very, the, these definitions being so, um, they're being so clear cut in terms of how complex people's movement is. Going off of what you just spoke about in terms of um, this kind of like compassionate framing of being more welcoming, um, which still kind of maintains the us and them or like host and guests kind of paradigm. And one thing I work on in my research is thinking about the conditionalities um, that come with citizenship, uh, mobility, and the ways in which like citizenship is both granted and suspended based on certain conditionalities. Um, particularly thinking about, you talk, you spoke about the cricket test, but then the ways in which that has been 
kind of formalized as like citizenship um, tests, British values, um, this idea that, well, maybe we could be welcoming and compassionate and charitable and let people in if they were to become really British um, or to become really from here. Um, and that test never goes away, right? And it's, it's this impossible standard of constantly trying to prove that you're really from here while knowing that you'll never be accepted as mm. that. So it's interesting to me that those kind of conditionalities are seen as us granting something through the form of education. Not only are we kind of like we here being who is accepted as British, lifting people um, to the status of becoming British, but we're also teaching them these great values. Mm. And to resist that, I often think about what would actual education be? Who would the audience of it be? Mm. I don't know if you think that's something useful to be thinking about. I mean, when I read your book to me, that's such a striking piece of reimagining what that education would be in terms of bringing out the history of empire, contesting this myth mm. of keeping the country white. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really it's a really good question. And the thing, you know, when you said British values, I kind of like winced. Yeah. <laughs> um, because, I mean, because it's... it's I, it, I mean, I guess it serves a particular function for government and for some people, but like this idea that it's thing, the British values are things like, and I don't know them all, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I guess I don't have to, right? I have this privilege of like having having citizenship, but would probably be considered by some people as not really British. Um, but it's things like rule of law, like respect for rule of law. And you think, do you all really think that like, if you think the rule of law is good as it is, then people complying with that is a British thing? Do we think that that is like the mark of what it is to be British? And what does that really tell us about like these ideas of British exceptionalism? And actually, so whiteness was mentioned, how whiteness is often at the heart of a lot of this, of thinking of Britain as this kind of progressive, positive place and a country that is developed. And I do think, so I, I do have done all my education in the UK and I made it through basically all of my education until I went to university without really learning anything about empire in the British state education system, right? That's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> That's unbelievable. <laughs> it is, but it is, it is unbelievable. And now I know it's unbelievable. And I actually, um, I actually did so right in my final year at, at school. I had opted to take history, so you don't have to. You don't have to study history. You can drop it right earlier on. I opted to take history, and you got the choice to um, to choose. You could choose, like I guess it was like a mini dissertation kind of thing, any subject you wanted. And I chose uh, the Indian independence movement because my mum is from India, and it was the only time I can really remember in my education that I learned about something that was like reflected my lived experience in any kind of way, like my family history, to understand that. And I found that. I, at the time, I don't know if I knew that that was mad. I think my, my parents will have known. Um, but now I look back on that and think, oh my God, how could, how is, how is it possible? And in the curriculum now, I don't know what it said when I was at school a million years ago, um, what it said, but now it says in the curriculum that children should learn at school about Britain's role in the world, its relationship with other countries in the world. And you think, what is a, I mean, how can you have that in the curriculum and not see this huge chunk of British history where it, empire is central to Britain and not think that that is very key to be taught about? And the part of the problem is, is we don't actually know how these things are being taught in school, if they're being taught at all, because in the UK, we have this very fragmented education system where we have the state system. We have the system of grammar schools, which is kind of selective. We have private schools, which you have to pay for. Um, and we also now have these things called academies which are run slightly differently the accountability is slightly different from the state system it's it's quite complicated to understand but what it means is that we don't have a very clear picture of what is being taught and how like we know what the curriculum is but it's not really clear basically the research from the running me trust on this shows that we don't really know exactly all the ways it's being taught but what i do know from te speaking to teachers is not really being taught in much 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 across the board right um and whenever you bring that up whenever you talk about that People are like, oh, it's so political. It's political to talk about empire. And you think, as if the silence itself is not political. Mm -hmm. The silence is so political because what it does is it allows Britain, allows people in the UK, and obviously not everyone thinks this, but allows people to make it through the education system 
without really grappling with the fact that you, would, you might learn about the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution was in part b- possible because of the financing exploitation from the colonies and the labor, right? And so without that telling of history, where Britain's ability to quote unquote develop was really reliant on this exploita- exploitative relationship, without that telling, um, people can think that it was just the internal genius of the British people who did this. And that is about whiteness, right? That is very much about these ideas of whiteness, about um, superiority and ability to succeed in a particular way. And I just think, yeah, if we maybe had a kind of political education across the UK, or if we maybe were able to like inject teaching empire into um, how we understand, into our education system, what it would mean is when you have things like the so-called Windrush scandal, which is when um, essentially when black British people who had the right to be in the UK but were subject to the hostile environment were deported, um, denied access to all kinds of things, including work, housing. Um, it means that people would understand why those people had been able to come to the UK as British citizens because it was because of empire, right? And if you change that, if you if people understand how it is that people didn't come as immigrants, they came as citizens, it would change. This is something, again, that Gaminda Bambra says. She says it would change the way we understand the immigration debate in its entirety. It would change this label of the immigrant. Um, or at least it would, you know, at the very least, maybe I'm being slightly too ambitious and thinking that teaching this in schools would fundamentally transform Britain as a country, but it would at least, like, equip people with the tools to, like, challenge some of this stuff and to, to interrogate some of the things that are said in our public discourse. Um, and that is happening. Like, people are doing that. There's a lot of very good journalists and um, commentators who are pushing back against these narratives, but you do need the education system to, I think, better reflect the kind of country that we're, that we're living in and how it is the Britain that we look around. You know, you walk around parts of the UK and you see the symbols of empire still. Um, yeah, yeah, um, you see it, and it's it's not. I don't think it's well enough understood that history. So we've talked a lot about how the hostile environment itself is a product of an inherent racism that exists throughout the British history, and a product of empire. Now, we've talked about how different ways of having anti-immigration policies, whether it's you know in the aftermath of it or in the lead up to Brexit. Or in the early 20th century, as a result of the Equality Aliens Act, we've also seen it, of course, in what Muna was talking about, as a result of passports, as forms of sorting bodies. We've seen it in the enumeration strategies of British Empire in in India. Um, we've seen it during the Nansen passports before the actual passports, and we've seen it in the way that the UNHCR uses the language of populations or persons of concern in referring to people that it can't particularly place as IDPs or as refugees. And of course, the short version of that is POCs, which harkens this weird image of a person of color. That's all to say, so so that hostile environment, like even though it, it seems to be so fundamentally tied to racism and whiteness, there is a big portion of it that just from tracing that genealogy to me seems to be tied to borders. The types of activism that we are seeing around these days is talking about borders and is talking to the potential of abolishing borders altogether. And I'm wondering, is there a tie between what we're seeing as a hostile environment and the current border regime? And how do you how do you begin to tackle the hostile environment without tackling borders? Yeah, I think that is key. And actually I got to I got to I like ended up writing the conclusion of the book and just reflected and thought, I've talked so much about immigration. Really what we should be talking about is bordering processes, right? Um, because the border is seen as the sign, this sign of strength, it is seen as necessary for the nation state to protect itself, to be a state, to um, ensure citizens that it, you know the state is going to provide for them in all kinds of ways. But what is um, neglected is uh, the damage that those borders are doing, right? And so we spend so much time talking about immigration and immigrants that we risk, you know, I really include myself in this, um, we risk really focusing our attention on the actual problem at hand and the problem is these processes are bordering and I think the hostile environment in the UK is a very very good example of that it shows us how the border is not just you know in the UK where the the land meets the sea it is 
everywhere. It's in our healthcare system, it's in our schools, it's in our universities, it is everywhere. I've been struck by, I've done quite a lot of events around the book around the country and the number of people who've said to me, yeah, yeah, this is this is in my profession too, like social services, this is here. This is something that people don't, we don't see because what you have is a population that is overworked as well. Um, but people end up complying with, I mean, there are people resisting it too, but essentially what the state in the UK has done is turn are uh, you know turn doctors into border guards turn all all kinds turn lecturers into border guards turn all kinds of people into border guards and that has been resisted as i say in in, in quite a lot of ways organizations like docs not cops but it's also been kind of accepted in a lot of places i think in the university it's been there again there there are groups um critical who are resisting um that but it is it being reproduced this kind of these processes of bordering um and i think that it's telling that when uh so uh, last year at the end of last year 39 people were found dead in the back of a lorry in essex people who had cut, it ended up it turned out that they were just trying to get to the uk most of them probably to to work I don't, like, we don't I, I don't know all the ins and outs of exactly what yeah what was happening to those people why they wanted to come to the UK but you know it's often quite complicated reasons often many reasons and one of the things that happened is when when these people were found dead there were, there was a response to people saying this is terrible right politicians accepted that this is terrible this has happened but there was also a kind of quiet but consistent idea that if there had been more border checks and more bordering processes it wouldn't have happened right and I mean on the one hand so I'm working on a project about this at the moment and I spoke to um Lucy Mablin who is at Sheffield um and she said something that I think is a very very good way of understanding it these kinds of things is she said um it's true that if you have border processes like if you have very strong what they call strong borders which means like very strict processes make it very difficult for people to cross borders or at least some people to cross borders um then it's true they they probably won't get to the UK or another country, right? But you don't disappear them. They still exist, right? It's just that they don't exist within your country, but they're still existing somewhere. They're still trying to live somewhere. And what you think about these people who um, were found dead in the back of this lorry is maybe a border check would have meant that they had been found. But what it actually means is that if they'd been found, they would have been deported. And that isn't necessarily... Um, that's not necessarily a solution because they might try that journey again they might risk their life again and so what was kind of perverse to me was knowing very little engagement with why they tried to make the journey in the first place um and thinking that borders were the solution not the problem and there is there's quite a there's a small number of cases um in recent history in the uk where you've had people climbing into plane undercarriages to try and get here and there is uh, one of the people who died trying to do that their brother said was interviewed and they he said uh he said we people like us and what he meant was you know poor poorer people um i think i think i think that's what i've read on twitter at least um you don't give visas to, to people like us so for us to get to the uk this seemed to be like the only way and that is the border right that is the border operating um quite clearly the border producing violence and producing death and, and so yeah i think you're right and one thing that i haven't said because someone actually pulled me up on this uh, yesterday at an event and i think that this is also right is uh we talk about the bordering processes as being about class and being about race but it's also about gender mm. and what you have in the uk at least is you have politicians and people who will talk about women's rights and then ne how necessary it is for equal rights and to protect women make sure women have protections and can protect themselves but they are le seem to be less interested in the fact that people who are seeking asylum for instance women who maybe are fleeing um gender-based violence in wh wherever whatever country in the world maybe fleeing gender-based violence maybe want to come to the europe or the uk um will experience potentially more gender-based violence it every point this is what someone said to me last night in an event every point of their journey including when they come to the uk mm -hmm. right including when they're trying to navigate the asylum system and it, people want to see it as, as oh over there is very bad with gender without engaging with the fact that the bordering processes and the kinds of um 
things that people can, can be, not always are, but can be subjected to in the UK too, mm-hmm. also means, looks like the gender-based violence they think is happening somewhere else. I want to sort of just tie this back to your paragraph um, that you read in the beginning. Um, I'm going to repeat it. We live in a world where it is necessary to remind people that immigrants are not things, not a burden and not the enemy, that they're human beings. So now I want to go back to that. Where is the compassion? Where is the empathy? Why is that missing? And how do we get back to that? So how do we change our thinking? But also, how do we take action? So what are the movements that are occurring? And how do young people, how do just people in general engage with this? Like, where is that compassion? Where has it gone? How do we get back to it? Um, it's there, right? I mean, it's there. It's just not always in in plain sight. I think in the UK, um, a positive, uh, positive is that the right word? A, a uh, I guess something that d- does should give some hope is that when the um, so the so-called Windrush scandal that happened in the UK, uh, the a former Guardian journalist and now professor at Manchester University, Gary Young, t- talked about, wrote a column about this. And what he said was the government was warned, right? They were warned that um, black British people were going to be potentially going to be caught up in the hostile environment. They were warned on multiple occasions, well before it, this, the, it was, you know, on the front page of The Guardian and other newspapers. And um, they were warned, but they just, he says, he argues, they just bet people wouldn't care if it happened. They just bet that British people wouldn't care the, you know anyone who wasn't wasn't being affected or the you know significant ma- number of the population wouldn't really care and they were wrong right i don't think that means you ignore the, some of the problems with the 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 uh the responses to that you know there's still this talk about so-called illegal immigration so you know people who are undocumented the demonization that goes on there um there was talk of like you know the good the good migrant and the bad migrants people being seen as worthy and people being not being seen as um being seen as the threat um so you know there's there's problems around that debate but actually it does tell us that anti-immigration feeling isn't inevitable bordering processes are not inevitability these kind of violent way of treating people is not inevitable and one of the core arguments that the right make and like the left parts of the left too um is that people dislike immigration because of too many immigrants coming into the country. And the only way to stop that is to reduce immigration. So it's kind of perverse argument that to reduce anti-immigration racism or prejudice, however they want to call it, but it's often racism um, or xeno-racism, to reduce that, you have to limit immigration. So it's kind of like a weird form of victim blaming, where in the UK they've talked about, oh, for good race relations, you have to have a strong immigration system. That's what they say. Because if you have too many black and brown people coming into Britain, there will be racial unrest and there will be violence. Um, and so the Windrush, this, this response to Windrush shows that it is not inevitable. It does, it's, not, it's not true. So just like race is not, is not real, it's constructed, anti-immigration feeling is the product of anti-immigration politics, not the product of immigration. And so that for me, is, is, in terms of a macro level, is a, is a hopeful thing and a necessary thing to remember. I think it's very difficult to challenge and change and resist. I'm not under any impression that it's like an easy thing to do and it's gonna even happen necessarily in my lifetime that we're gonna see, you know, people questioning borders maybe in the way that I believe we need to. But that is hope, I'm hopeful about that. I'm, that's promising. I like hold on to that when I think about this. And, you know, so many people doing so much work around resisting immigration controls, resisting borders. There is so much work being done, so much. Like I do think there's lots and lots of grassroots groups in the UK, but in the US, I mean, all around the world, right? You have this, 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 this um, saying, you know, no one is illegal. Like that is not just that is that people people believe in that. There are groups that believe in that all around the world, and here in the UK. Um, there's tons of activist groups. Like I, I mentioned Docs Not Cops, there were schools ABC who were also resisting the hostile environment, but I also spent a fair bit of time for the book um, talking to people who move, who had to move through the, and navigate the immigration system. And whilst doing so, I encountered a lot of people, a lot of spaces where people were getting support and where people were supporting one another, where people were giving immigration advice, and English lessons if people wanted it, things that the state doesn't really provide um or not in the way that it should um and that gives me a lot of hope because here we have a um conservative government probably for 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 five years 
um, with the majority who, you know, will will do what they do with their majorities. And I don't think that's going to be good for migrant rights. But there's lots of people who've been enthused by, you know, lots of people on the left who've been enthused by politics, who've engaged with the Labour Party or other organisations. And what I think, and I like include myself within, you know, thinking about what kind of action could be taken and not just, you know, sitting behind a laptop writing a book about this, is actually time and energy being given and money <laughs> you've got it um being given to those organizations because they're necessary now and that i think will be even more necessary and one of the spaces that i went to you know they said this is not about charity this is about solidarity and that gives me hope thank you so much maya and thank you for listening Maya's book mentions a lot of these groups as well, so that's a good place to get started, and we'll try to have resources on our show notes available online. Please let us know what you thought of the episode. You can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, at DeclarationsPod, or send us an email at editor at declarations.com. Tune in next time for more Declarations. Please let us know what you thought about today's discussion or if there's something you'd like to know more about. You can send us an email, editor at declarationspod.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter at declarationspod. You can also check out our website, declarationspod.com, where every episode has a companion piece with more information about each week's topics. These are written by our show notes writer, Katerina O'Mellon. Our media manager is Ms. Malik. Our sound editor is Helen Jennings. Matt Mahmoudi and Max Curtis are our producers. And Jin Min Tan is our executive producer.